Welcome to the Louisiana Delta Crop Podcast, covering agriculture and all things related in East Carroll, Madison, Tinsall, Concordia, and Catahoula Parishes. Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of the Louisiana Delta Crop Podcast. My name is Kylie Miller and today I'm joined with Dennis Byrne, uh, Dr. Glenn Gentry, and Dr. Jim LaVore. And today's topic of conversation is going to be um, deer, and specifically we want to talk about the chronic wasting disease. So why don't you start by telling us what that is, uh, what it looks like, and just the history of it. Well, then, before you get, you're an expert in all this, so you need to tell us how you're an expert. Okay. Well, I'm the, uh, this is Jim LaCour. I'm the state wildlife veterinarian with mm-hmm. the Louisiana Department of Wildlife and Fisheries. Okay. So chronic wasting disease surveillance and all things chronic wasting disease related are in my shop. So we, uh, we deal with it on a regular basis or, or at least the, the search for it. Um, chronic wasting disease is a neurological disease uh, that affects white-tailed deer, mule deer, elk, moose, reindeer, anything in the cervidae family. So all those animals are related, but all in the deer family. And it's caused by a prion. A prion is a, a proteinaceous particle that's smaller than a virus. And uh, the, the, uh, these prions that cause disease actually induce changes in the normal prions that protect brain tissue. So these prions are what's called a transmissible spongiform encephalopathy, which is a whole mouthful of words that means it eats holes in the brain. So if you look at the brain under the microscope, it looks like a sponge. And obviously brains work pretty well when all the cells are there and when there are a bunch of cells missing, things don't work so well. So this uh, disease is shed from infected deer. It started actually, it was first discovered in 1967 in Colorado, so it's not a new disease, but it spread uh, throughout the United States, a uh, gradual spread at first, and then with deer movement by people, either trophy animals, parts that were brought back and forth, or perhaps even live captive deer movement. Um, you know, the, the prion has spread. Uh, it's in 26 states and three Canadian provinces now. Uh, we are fortunate in Louisiana that we have not found it here yet, but we are surrounded. It's in Mississippi, Texas, and Arkansas. Um, this, as it eats holes in the brain, there's a progressive disease that goes on. It's a very slow, insidious disease. Uh, from the time they contract it, which once again, it's, it's, I kind of short-circuited myself there. <laughs> uh, it's it spread in saliva, urine, feces, and decomposing body parts. Um, it's located typically in the brain, lymph nodes, and spinal cord. Those are the highest concentrations in the body. But uh, these prions are smaller than viruses. They're extremely resistant to degradation. So they last for many, 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 many years in the environment. They are uh, resistant to uh, heat. So uh, scientists say you have to heat them up to about 1500 degrees to kill them. Uh, So you can't even put them in a surgical autoclave and kill them. Um, You can degrade them with certain chemicals, but nothing works on a broad landscape basis. So basically once you get it, you got it. 
Um, the deer can pick it up out of the soil. Actually, plants can uptake these prions and the deer can browse on the plants and get these prions. They go through their tonsils into their lymph nodes, eventually get into their brain and spinal tissue, their neural tissue. That process is very slow. So it, the, the minimum time to onset a disease from the time they get it, where they start showing clinical signs, is about 16 months. And that's bad because that allows it to be shed onto the landscape for a long period of time. If you have the flu or a bad cold, you feel bad, you don't want to be around people, they don't want to be around you. And, and, and it's very obvious. So it's not going to spread as fast as something that they walk around apparently perfectly healthy for at least 16 months, shedding it all over the landscape so it can be infectious to other animals. So... Um, but anyway, we do annual surveillance for this because it, it is a serious disease. It can ultimately lead to a decrease in the deer herd. Um, these deer, it's 100% fatal to deer. If they get it, they're going to die, and, and there's no cure for it, no treatment for it. Um, it is related to some other uh, prion diseases, mad cow disease, you've probably heard of that, Crutzville mm -hmm. uh, Jakob disease in people. So it's not just in deer, but chronic wasting disease is specific to deer. It has never been shown to be contagious to human beings. However, um, there was a study recently where they fed deer meat from a, from a, a deer that was positive for CD, CWD, but not clinical, meaning it looked like a healthy deer. They fed this meat in small portions, just like a person would eat, you know, one little portion a week. And, and they fed it to macaque monkeys, and uh, some of those monkeys actually developed lesions. Now, monkeys are not people, mm -hmm. but they're close to people. So with that finding, the Center for Disease Control and the World Health Organization recommend, number one, that you don't eat meat from a CWD-positive deer, and number two, if you hunt in an area that has CWD, that you have the deer tested before you consume the meat. And how do you do that? We, uh, the Department of Wildlife and Fisheries uh, is available. We actually have quotas per parish. We do uh, a model and, and take into account many risk factors uh, for the deer. We take in uh, hunter harvest in that parish. We take in how many deer we've tested in that parish. If there are deer taxidermists or processors, because if they brought in animals from out of state, and that could be CWD positive, and, and if they dumped the you know the carcasses or the parts in the back forty, that could bring it into the state. So if they're adjacent to deer pens where captive cervids used to be brought in, they haven't been uh, there's been a moratorium for a few years now on the importation of live deer into Louisiana, but they used to import a lot of deer. So if it's an area that's uh, around those captive cervid pens or if they're an escaped deer. We've had some severe hurricanes in the past few years. A lot of trees went down, fences went down, and we have a lot of deer and elk and black buck and other things. <laughs> that was a big story in Monterey <laughs> this past year where we had an elk that was on, the, uh, on someone's camera. Right. And, uh, that was that was a fun little hunt for everybody, I guess. <laughs> so our biologist um, takes samples from the deer. Mm -hmm. um, Anybody can have their deer tested if they desire. We do have mechanisms in place. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, we have quotas per area that we want to, to sample and we can get at least that many. Um, so uh, our, once again, I'm going to say this several times during this, we have not found chronic wasting disease in Louisiana yet. We've tested about 12,000 deer now, haven't found it yet. Doesn't necessarily mean it's not here, but we haven't found it and we hope not to find it. Um, it has some, you know, when you get chronic wasting disease in an area, there's some, some restrictions that will automatically go in place. We're going to try to let hunters reduce the number of deer in those areas. They'll probably be localized, not statewide, but localized feeding bands because we don't want to bring those animals together to, at a food pile. We already said it spread through saliva, urine, and feces, so we don't want them congregating. See, I remember, what was it, two years ago that they found the deer north of Vicksburg and Issaquina County. Right. And Tinsall came in that circle that they Is that had. the only one they found in Mississippi? No, Mississippi, they, they found two, to my knowledge, in Issaquina County. Okay. Um, but in, in, their, in Mississippi's uh, surveillance, they actually found uh, going diagonally to the northeast, kind of a trail of deer all the way up to the Tennessee line. Mm -hmm. And then Tennessee discovered that they've had an area that's been apparently smoldering unnoticed for years. Mm -hmm. and, and they have, you know, 25 to, in some areas, 50% positive rate mm -hmm. of chronic wasting disease in that area. So these deer probably migrated you know, down over time and, and got the Issaquena. Well, it, well, I know the Tensaw and Madison came in that, in one of those bands. Right, Tensaw, Madison, <coughs> and East Carroll. And they, they banned uh, feeding. Couldn't, you couldn't feed right. in those areas. Right, and, and it was a, a time the river was very high back then. <coughs> we did some intensive surveillance and, and uh, we had uh, a number of the landowners that, that gave us permission to, to harvest deer on their area to look for this disease. Uh, we did not find it. Uh, we have, actually there's an interesting thing that Mississippi uh, put some collars on some deer uh, in Essequina County and, and this past year we had a deer that spent quite a few months in Louisiana when the river came up. I've seen them cross the river. Yeah, they yeah. swam the river and yeah. stayed on our side. So we know that deer go back and forth. Um, in that case, back when we, they had the index case, the first case in Mississippi, uh, the river was very high and stayed very high for a long time, which may have been to our advantage uh, because if, if there were sick deer in there, they probably weren't able to swim and they probably drowned. Uh, there was so much water that due to sedimentation and dilution it may have washed these prions away or covered them up so we think that the high river was, was actually a blessing for us um, but we're still very vigilant in that northeast area with our surveillance because you know it's it's certainly got to be a prime consideration the deer in arkansas are typically in the northwestern part so they're not right against the border the deer in texas uh, although there are more and more cases popping up, there's nothing super, super close to us. Like the deer in Issaquena were five miles from the Louisiana line. So, well, now, and I may, I may be mistaken, but I, my understanding, if I go to Mississippi and kill a deer, I have to have it processed before I come home. Well, that due to our concerns over chronic wasting, <coughs> we did impart some uh, 
carcass importation regulations back in 2017. And, and just to be clear, this is not just Louisiana. Most every state has the same or at least similar regulations. So if you go hunting in Colorado, every state pretty much you go through is going to have regulations on that to try to prevent the importation of CWD. But if you hunt out of state, whether it's one mile over the state line or it's five states away, the deer can be completely boned out. It can bring just the boneless meat or it can be quartered without any spinal tissue. So you can, can you know, cut down the ribs on each side of the spine and, and take that and have a quartered deer with no spinal tissue, no neural tissue. Uh, you can bring elk ivories, the teeth. You can bring a cleaned uh, antlers with a clean skull cap. So you can cut the top off the skull, take the brain out, and just bring the antlers and the skull cap. You can bring in um, finished taxidermy mounts. So you can have it completely processed up there, wherever you're hunting, and bring that in. Uh, but you cannot bring in an intact carcass or an intact head. Some people, a lot of people like to do European mounts where the, you, know, you boil the skull and they want to bring the whole head home. But that brain in there, if it has CWD, is loaded with the prions. And you can't, boiling's not going to kill them. Yeah, you so, said boiling would right. could survive so, at 1500 degrees. So if you, if you boil that skull and dump the water out somewhere where other deer can access it, it potentially could bring the disease into the state. And I think that's important to say because I, I know I see a lot of people, I mean, where we're at, we go back and forth from Natchez and that's Mississippi all the time. And I see, you know, people putting them in the back of their truck, driving across their, you know, they want yeah. everybody to see their, their kill, you know. And so, I mean, I love hunting just as much as everybody else, but I want it to be there in the future. So Absolutely. I think that's great to mention. And chronic wasting disease is called chronic wasting disease because as this disease progresses, the deer get ataxic, they're wobbly, they salivate, they get to where they don't want to eat or can't eat, and they lose body condition and get very poor and ultimately get down and die. Mm -hmm. We should note that we always want to test a poor neurological deer. So they, if someone sees an animal like this, they can call the regional wildlife fisheries offices and they'll dispatch a biologist to test that deer. However, there are a lot of other causes for a skinny deer. And so um, we, we get that all the time. The phone rings and someone says, I've got a chronic wasting disease deer because it's skin and bones. Well, we have a disease called hemorrhagic disease or blue tongue which is a, a couple of different diseases under that same category. Uh, it's a viral disease spread by, by the little gnats, the little culicoides gnats. And, um, and it, causes, it can cause these deer to have acute death. They can just fall over. Uh, they can get sick and show some outward signs. The, the chronic form of it, it, they get scarring in their room and their stomach, and they can't absorb nutrients, so they just waste away to nothing. They, they'll, these deer typically be standing at a feeder eating all day and starving to death. Mm -hmm. and, and so that it makes, can result in very skinny deer. We get deer that get hit by cars and break their jaw and can't eat or, or hurt in hog traps, break their jaw, can't eat, they get skinny, you know. So there are other causes for a skinny deer, mm -hmm. but the take home message is we do want to test deer if, if they see a deer that's sick or if they kill one while they're hunting and it looks ill in any way, if they'll call the, the regional biologist, we would like to test those deer. Mm -hmm. 
and, and yeah, take home messages once again. We have not found chronic wasting disease in Louisiana. And although it's never been shown to be contagious to humans, it's recommended that you don't eat one that you know has CWD. And if you go hunting somewhere where there is chronic waste disease, that you uh, have that deer tested. Generally, it's tested in the state where you hunt. So if you go to Colorado, you get it tested up there. We're not going to test that deer for you in Louisiana because it doesn't go towards our surveillance. Okay, it would be surveillance for Colorado. But yeah, so we, we do recommend that those animals are tested before you before you eat them. Okay, I'll swing away here just for a second because you mentioned blue tone. Dr. Gentry, here at the, we're at the Idlewild Research Station. We're recording this today. Y'all have a deer herd here. Correct. And y'all do, you mentioned something earlier. Yeah, Dr. Dr. Lane Foyle is an entomologist. Uh, he's also the Pennington Wildlife Chair up here at Idlewild. Uh, has had a study over the last five years looking at EHDV, Epizoic Hemorrhagic Disease Virus, and Blue Tongue Virus in white-tailed deer. Uh, <clears throat> a couple of things have come out of that. I think one of the things is the testing I think wildlife and fisheries now use to determine at one point, Jim, correct me if I'm wrong, is, is people about this time of year when they're going to the woods would find dead deer next to water uh, sources. They would call wildlife and fisheries. Wildlife and fisheries would go out and say, well, it's probably EHDB because they're next to water source. Uh, so we had outbreaks on this station. At one point, I think we lost 70% of our herd to uh, EHDB and blue tongue. And so uh, Dr. Foyle's idea was to take these carcasses and we would put them in exclusions in the woods and let them do what they would do naturally. And over time, collect uh, bone marrow from the long bones and search for these diseases. You want to take it from there, Jim? Yeah, that's sure. Typically what yeah, so typically to diagnose these diseases, um, which run a very high prevalence in, in Louisiana and most states, if, if we go through and and we do, we do normal serological blood surveillance on deer. Sometimes 60 or 70% will have antibodies to these viruses. May never have gotten sick at all, but they were exposed. So just because the blood is positive on a, on a serum test doesn't mean they're sick from it. But we'd have to do viral isolation. Kind from, of like a COVID, right. <laughs> it sounds like. We'd yeah. have to do viral isolation on the lungs or the spleen to isolate the virus to say, yes, this animal was sick and died from this disease. Well, Dr. Foyle's project showed that using that bone marrow, we can do a, a, a PCR, polymerase chain reaction test, on that bone marrow, as long as it's still moist. If it dries out, we can't find it. But as long as it's still moist, we have up to three, maybe four months after that animal dies and decomposes, where we can still tell if it had circulating virus when it died. So. You know, as Glenn said, back in the day, the guys went to the woods and found a, a carcass or a skeleton, and we'd say, yeah, it was probably hemorrhagic disease. Now we can actually test and say, yes, it was hemorrhagic disease. So, so one of the main uh, focuses of Dr. Foyle's work is where does the disease overwinter? Is it in the insect or is it in the deer or, or what? So for the past five years, we'll bring uh, heifers in from the Hill Farm, which is another one of our units mm -hmm. in Homer, Louisiana. Uh, they'll come in and they will test them for antibodies. We will keep the ones that have not been exposed. And we will graze those animals right next to the deer herd. And uh, I think the way it works is we start seeing uh, those animals positive 
to HDB and blue tone, which animals, typically cattle, are asymptomatic. And uh, within a month of that, we'll start seeing deer die. And the, the interesting part about that is uh, about a third of the, the deer in a pen together get the disease and die. About a third of them get the disease and live, and about a third of them are never exposed. And so that's one of the interesting parts about this is these these midges are not very good flyers. So it's 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 he's trying to figure out how it's uh, spread and what it overwinters in. And I think what he's leaning towards now will be the next step is tree holes, if I'm not mistaken. Yes. Yeah, specifically in water oaks mm -hmm. that hold the little holes in the trees where the limbs are, what have you. That one mm -hmm. specific species of these culicoides stays in there and may be able to overwinter in those those water holes in oak trees. Oh. That's fascinating, really. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and and uh, you may or may not remember back in 2012 there was an exotic strain of, of EHDV, the epizootic hemorrhagic disease virus, called EHD6, EHDV6. Uh, that that particular strain had stayed in central Texas alone for many many years and just kind of hung out there. Well, 2012 was a drought year. They had a lot of people that. Um, had to sell out their herds or of deer and or cattle out of Texas and they went all over. Well, this experiment station Idlewild, uh, by forethought or happenstance, I don't know which, had, was testing their cattle all through there and actually saw when that particular viral strain showed up on this experiment station and had some cattle that actually exhibited lesions, which as Glenn says, unusual for that disease. When you say lesions? They actually had, yeah, they had some mouth ulceration and some ulceration on the feet apparently. Um, and so they have that well documented and showed it coming in, but deer in Louisiana are exposed every year to some normal strains, so a few die, most of them have no effect. As, as Glenn said, but this was a very lethal strain, and we probably lost, we estimate about 20,000 a year that year in Louisiana to that virus, and across the United States, those cows and deer went everywhere. And some of the states, the Dakotas, some of the Dakotas had actually shut their deer season down. They had such high deer mortality from it. So it's very interesting to look at the ecology of those you know, diseases as they move from areas where they've been for years, and humans, once again, help spread those diseases. Did, didn't some of those states actually refund hunting? Yes, they actually refunded hunting licenses hmm. to people, so, because they had no deer to hunt. Okay, we're gonna talk about people moving things, and I think you mentioned something a while ago, COVID. Yes. Here. So, the, the whole, um, <coughs> SARS-CoV-2 is the virus, and the, the disease caused by it is COVID-19, just for semantics. Um, you know, it, nobody really knows, I guess, for sure where it started. Uh, it's thought that it came from a bat and went into a pangolin and then into the human food chain and morphed all there and became this horrible virus that, that kills people. It, there have been rumors it was released from a lab in China. Who knows? I don't know. Um, but we do know that um, humans, number one, are the primary host and carrier of this disease. Um, since it came about, there has been um, uh, 
worry that it would get into wildlife from humans. And, I've uh, seen like at zoos they'll say, because yeah, a lot of the young dogs right. we go to and, and there are certain <coughs> species that are susceptible, dogs and cats dogs, amongst yeah. them are, are susceptible. Um, scientists learned early on that the way that the virus works is it attacks uh, one specific protein uh, that happens to be in the lungs. Um, it's angiotensin converting enzyme 2 or ACE2 uh, receptors and that's what this virus attacks. So um, they went through and looked at a lot of the animal species to see if they had that receptor. Some animals don't have it, uh, others do and so they started doing some testing and they found out, well we found out from mink farms before in this testing that mink are highly susceptible and, and they were uh, it escaped mink farms and got into some wild mink in the areas. Um, there were many mink farms that were depopulated, not just in our country, but others. And they had workers in mink farms that were getting sick. The workers gave it to the mink and the mink were giving it back to the <laughs> workers. Um, so they looked around and uh, pigs, there's curiosity about pigs and, and uh, uh, they've done three trials. are pigs similar to humans? Is that What's that? Are pigs similar to humans? Pigs are very similar to humans. In fact, they use heart valves right. and aortas yeah. out of pigs and humans. Um, but the early trials, I've done three studies to my knowledge. Uh, the first two showed that they were very resistant. The, the third trial, they gave them a very high dose of the virus. The pigs made antibodies to it. They shed just a little bit of virus. So they might be slightly capable of, of infecting other animals. Um, White-tailed deer had the receptors, and so they did some studies on them. First, in, in a stall, they gave it to one deer, and, and they were able to pass it to the other deer. Uh, they, they made antibodies. They got a high enough viremia to shed the virus in small numbers, but they did infect other deer next to them that, that were not infected, so it could be passed. The deer really didn't get sick. They didn't act sick, they kept eating, so it really didn't affect the deer that much. Uh, so uh, USDA um, decided to do some, uh, some serological testing, so just to see how many wild deer out there had antibodies. And so they did some testing up in, in some of the northern states. Uh, they tested a few hundred deer and it was interesting to find out that about 40% of them had antibodies to COVID-19 or SARS-CoV-2 virus, uh, which was, everybody just, their jaw just kind of dropped because uh, uh, in, in their surveillance, some of them came from, you know, deer that were culled in urban areas or what have you. And you might be able to see that, but some of these, like the guy said, you know, they had to pipe in sunshine to some of these areas <laughs> and they still had deer that were positive. You know, how Do you they, know how they transmit it? No, that's kind of the question. The, okay. the deer can probably transmit it to each other, mm -hmm. like we saw in the pen. Mm -hmm. uh, it apparently doesn't affect the population, probably not at all. But some things that are kicked around, and nobody knows for sure, so it's possible that uh, sewage, because the virus is shed in sewage, so any runoff or waterways may be infected. Uh, people that are feeding deer, especially in urban areas, a lot of people feed and deer you know, can eat out of their hands at times. So they get close or just dumping feed, they spit on the ground. Um, maybe even like dogs, maybe dogs catch 
and people and go out in the wild and do their thing, but nobody really knows that mechanism yet. Mm -hmm. So um, we are actually um, doing surveillance in Louisiana this year on hunter harvested deer, uh, just taking blood samples mm -hmm. uh, from those and we're going to, we're working with the uh, USDA on that. They'll do the testing for us mm -hmm. to see what kind of prevalence we have in our state. And the recommendation is um, probably, or the thought is that Probably it's not contagious from deer to humans because of the low viremia, but still they recommend, uh, especially when handling the lung tissue of the deer and the, the trachea and all the secretions, you're probably better off wearing gloves and you know not throwing them in your face and stuff like that. So no more first cure wiping the blood. That's the recommendations, gotcha. but uh, you know I, it's. Theoretically, if folks are vaccinated and um, uh, are careful handling them, it shouldn't be a problem. It should be a fairly low viremia, but there's still a lot of work going on on that. But it was that was sort of a startling result to find, you know, that high prevalence of these antibodies in in wild white-tailed deer. Yeah, I didn't I didn't even know about that, so that's pretty. Interesting. I didn't know I was going to wear a mask. <laughs> Wear a mask on the deer stand. <laughs> yeah. Hey, well, you know, if it's cold, we're doing that. That's right. That's right. <laughs> uh, I got one last question. Shoot, go for it. <clears throat> okay. Um, like in Tinsall Parish and Concordia, Madison, these are big deer hunting areas. What would be the economic backlash of C CWD on, on us? Well, luckily we don't know firsthand what would happen, but we do know from other states that, uh, that have chronic waste disease, we kind of get an idea of what happens. Um, from kind of from our viewpoint, uh, hunting license sales initially will take a dip. Uh, typically after a year or two, they come back up to normal levels. Some people just decide they're not going to hunt and, and don't want to be exposed to that, but apparently they, they get bored playing golf or whatever and they come back to hunting a few years later. Um, there have been, in cases, some, uh, some uh, issues where property values may devalue a bit because, you know, some of these areas are known for big deer haven and a lot of deer and a great place to hunt. Well, still people are going to hunt. So this too seems to rebound. Uh, it's an initial knee-jerk reaction. Once again, this is just experience from other areas of the country. Uh, of course, feeding and baiting initially are banned in that area. It's not a statewide ban. Uh, so there are, there are some impacts to mom and pop stores that sell corn and bait and co-ops and feed stores. So, so we know that's there. Um, ultimately, from what we know from other areas, it's all sort of temporary. And so, okay. A, we hope never to find it, but if we do, we know kind of what's going to happen. And, and some things we recommend one other thing i didn't talk about earlier as far as you know trying to minimize the risk is handling carcasses so we ask people if you shoot a deer you know in in western louisiana and you live in eastern louisiana if you have the capability it's best to clean that deer and leave all the gut pile and the bones and everything where you where you harvested the deer um in 
for people that live in urban areas that have municipal landfills, disposing of the deer parts in, in municipal landfills is a great way to prevent prions from getting on the landscape. It's been shown in, in research that the prions don't, don't really filter through the soil far with all the clay liners and everything in landfills. So that's a great place. Um, deep burial is good. We recommend people don't throw them in the water. There's some magical attraction between a dead animal and water <laughs> that everybody wants to throw them in the water. Well, number one, that contaminates the water with rotting flesh for all the other animals, but the prion as well, if you do have a positive deer, will be in the water and shit. And I'm sure that's just to get them out of the way. It is. It's, it just is some magical attraction. They just gravitate there. I live, I live on a rock, and I have two German short hairs. And during deer season, and there's a bridge up the road, they come home with whole, they don't bring the whole deer, they just bring it one piece at a time. Oh, that's right. I mean, you know, I mean, all, it's like your jigsaw puzzle. You get to try to put it back together. I know. I mean, you know, and they, they come up here and it's like, you got to do something. <laughs> you know. Anyway, Dr. Gentry, you got any final words? Not really. I think Jim's covered it all pretty well. Now, let me ask this question. Didn't y'all used to do a deer field day here? So, yes, we used to do a bit deer field day. I think Don Reed was in charge of that. He was yeah. our wildlife extension specialist. Uh, but we haven't had one. We've got a new extension specialist, actually long, but then yeah. we've had COVID get in the way, and it's really impacted on what we can do as far as interacting with the public. But we're looking at doing something like that again. Now, we also have done a uh, Felicia and a Wildlife Expo. We've had two years we did that before COVID. Um, First year, I think we had 800 people show up on a Saturday here, and the next year we had, I think, 300. So uh, we're looking at maybe doing something like that again in the spring. Mm -hmm. So well, check out our website. So we can get that out yeah. there. Yeah. And we'll do that and put you back on the podcast. That's it, you know. Well, look, one other thought I was going to mention, and, and I just recently found this out, and I see your shirt, so it makes me think of it. But yeah, um, Louisiana Wallet, you know, keeping up with your hunting license, you can. You you have your driver's license on there. Um, you also have your COVID vaccination card. But now you are putting hunting license on that. Is that correct? That's correct. I see it's coming soon, so I don't, I don't have that option yet. But is it coming? Yes, it is coming. And also, there's a uh, text to tag program that okay. will be uh, on the website. And there, if you go on the website, there are directions on how to do it. Where and you still have to carry your paper tags on you if you're hunting deer. You have to have your tags. However, you can shoot a deer, walk up to it, get text to tag, and, and tag that deer, and get your verification and all in one step without ever putting your tag on the deer. And it's where it gets legal. And the game wardens will look at your phone and see where you tagged and validated that deer all electronically without having to actually put the physical tag on the deer, even though you still have to have the physical tag in your in your possession. Oh, so no excuses, huh? Right. Yeah, it's, <laughs> we're trying to make things easier yeah. for people. And, I like and, that. And uh, the tags are, are paper this year. You have to print them yourself typically or get them printed on regular paper. And and this should help with some of the um, the uh, reports we've gotten of uh, you know paper tags falling apart and all that business. It got wet as I was coming out. Yeah. I don't know what happened to it. Yeah. You know? So I always I carry a backpack when I hunt. I always 
it has a little inside zipper and that's where I kept mine. Uh, you know, not a big killer, I guess, but I always <laughs> end up with a few exes. But that's where I always kept mine. But uh, anyway, guys, I think I appreciate y'all joining us today. And I, I, I know I learned a lot just yeah, listening to y'all. So very, very informative. Very informative. Yeah, thank y'all for your time. Enjoyed it very yeah, much. Right. Y'all are welcome anytime. Thank you. The Louisiana Delta Crop Podcast is produced by the LSU Ag Center Extension Service. For more information, visit the LSUAgCenter.com or contact your local extension office.